Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 179th episode of the Nauticast, titled The Bell Ringers, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Arya 5, in which Arya and her companions arrive at Stony Sept and meet a bunch of interesting people, none of whom are Beric Dondarrion and Thoros of Mir. Manu, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? Oh, we got to meet Poochie first. Poochie the Hound. Every time Beric's not on screen, everyone else should be standing around going, where's Beric? That's me. <laughs> That's me right now. I'm asking, where's Beric? Our spoiler warning, as always, all published books, five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as sometimes Game of Thrones, the TV show, and House of the Dragon. I suppose I should add now to our spoiler warning. Anything and everything. So we're going to start this episode off with a question. That's something we uh, often do. We take questions from any one of our uh, $10 and above patrons, Sworn Sword tier and above patrons, can send in a question to be asked at the start of an episode. And this question comes from our patron, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune. I watched the History of Westeros interview with George that came out last week, which was great. Indeed it was. And I was somewhat surprised by his answer around 41 minutes in to the question about parallel lives. Ashea asked if he consciously writes the historical characters in Fire and Blood with characters in the main series in mind. I wouldn't expect him to say, yes, you caught me, Aemond one eye is Targaryen, Euron. But he almost seemed to dismiss it out of hand. I, like many others, tried to glean what we could from Fire and Blood to theorycraft what could be applicable to the main series. In thinking about it, I'm sure this just falls into the category of George playing around with character archetypes in various different ways, but I wanted to see if his comments here alter your perspectives when comparing characters in Fire and Blood to characters in the main series. So what do you think about that, Manu? I mean, we do often go overboard on character parallels in general, and especially between Fire and Blood and the main series, because that's, that's kind of how we relate it back to the story we love. So have we maybe gone way too far with that? Um, this is a really interesting question coming off our episode two discussion where there's a scene between Rhaenyra and Rhaenys, and I'm like, oh, that's like Marjorie and Olena. And you said, oh, that's like Brienne and Catelyn. And we compared um, Ariane was there, Arya. So I'm just, I'm tugging my neck like a cartoon character because yeah, okay. Specifically, Ashea asked uh, whether he does the parallels uh, consciously, whether he's playing with fire and blood in terms of the characters in the main series. And George said, no, I don't. It's not consciously. He said those certain similarities are inevitable. And uh, there are certain resonances in history. There are certain universals about humanity, people competing for power, people competing for love and lust. So, you know, I don't always take George's word as gospel because he said he didn't intend for people to get like, you know, romantic about Sandor Clegane. And I'm like, I read A Clash of Kings. I know what you were doing, dude. But yeah, you know, he does. He likes his archetypes and recurring patterns. So maybe just that is the level it's occurring at. Yeah, it's almost... I'm not even interested in what he has to say about it to a certain extent. No, no disrespect legit. to George. And Absolutely I don't want legit. to uh, ruin our chances of ever having him on the not a cast. But <laughs> at a certain point, um, it's more just I'm interested in how George's mind works. And I think something we're seeing right now with the uh, Damon Targaryen is not necessarily that he's playing with something that he's going to necessarily do or theory craft for the end of A Song of Nice and Fire. But that feels more like cutting room floor Jamie Lannister, like, you know, first draft. And this is what Jamie could have done if I stuck with my original notions in mind. And maybe it has nothing to do with that. And it might also be us, the people who are anticipating the end of A Song of Ice and Fire. Those are the things that we narrow in on, like Alaric Stark as Stannis and Alisane as Sansa. 
But to him, that just might be 5% of his brain space where some of the, you know, just random shit he's doing elsewhere um, is equally weighted in his mind. Whereas the stuff that we think might be portentous is stuff that's obviously going to jump to, you know, we're going to make it more important because we're still trying to look for answers here. Um, whereas he might not be thinking about that. And I think the word conscious is a very important word here because I just think some of it is just you know, he writes in a certain way, he creates characters that are rich in certain ways, and there is just going to be overlap. And there's a certain logic to his world and to his characters where if certain things happen, it feels like things are a logical result. And seeing that play out over and over again, or seeing similarities between the two, I, I just feel that's like part of the game. It's going to happen, whether intentional or not. Agreed. And you know, yeah, the the writer's approach and the reader's approach are just always going to be different. And that's, of course, fine. And I wonder if a lot of it also is just writing from a different perspective as he is in the fire in, in fire and blood from the more kind of detached and, and questionable perspective of the maester's writing. I wonder if that is just such a different process. It feels different, even if he is doing similar things with characters. As I say, there's no interiority to a lot of these fire and blood characters. So as where we're able to fill some of these characters with our own projections based on what we know from a song of ice and fire characters, he may just not think about them in the same way. Yep, that's a very good point. Again, like we get the end product and we feel, you know, we tease our way through the POVs, but for him, the writing process is, is so different. It must just feel like an, an entirely different process. So, yeah, I think, you know, I think there's, it's easy to reduce something like Fire and Blood to just Easter eggs for the main series. And it is, it is worth, you know, marinating in it on its own. But yeah, you know, it's hard not to look at Damon on the Iron Throne and go, pitch letter, pitch letter, as we all did. I think that's just, that's irresistible. So, as I said, Anyone who wants to ask us questions here on the Nauticast can go on over to patreon.com slash ASOIAF. If you sign up to be a sworn sword or higher level tier, you can send in questions either on Patreon or by email at ASOIAF at gmail.com. But on to the chapter. So last time we checked in with Arya, she was riding around with her best friends, the Brotherhood Without Banners, on their Robin Hood mission to bring justice and bread to the Riverlands. And this week she is doing more of that. So here we go with A Storm of Swords, Arya 5. After weeks of tramping through the woods, Arya finally arrives at Stony Sept, a new city. Or town, village, hole in the wall, whatever, it's a good place to stretch your legs. Her new slash old best friend Harwin tells her that good old dead Ned won a battle here back in the day. Robert was heroically hiding here when the hand of the Mad King showed up with his army. Which hand was it? John, something, Connington, maybe? Don't worry, not important, won't be on the test. Anyway, Ned turned up next, along with his father-in-law, Hoster Tully, and the battle was joined. The Septons rang their bells so the small folk would know to stay inside. Again, minor detail, feel free to forget all about it. The bells summoned Robert to take part in the rebellion named for him, and he killed a bunch of guys, including a Dr. Seuss character named Miles Mooton, former squire to Prince Rhaegar. John Connington wounded Lord Hoster and killed Dennis Aaron, heir to the Vale, before flying off like the griffins on his shield to never be seen again, ever. Arya likes a good war story, but she is more interested in the battles fought here during this war. Thankfully, Stony Sept looks like it's weathering the storm, with a brand new gate run by a captain who knows the Brotherhood and lets them in. They've even got food here, thanks to a guy with the extremely comforting nickname of the Mad Huntsman. He's got good reason for that, though. When the Lannisters came to town, they raped his relatives, burned his crops, and killed his animals. He's looking for revenge, and he might get it if he manages to track down the Kingslayer. 
I would say Jamie got off easy, but well, someone even worse got a hold of him. Arya doesn't see any people, and thinks at first they're all dead. But they soon come out of hiding. There's a couple kids, a baker, a fountain full of water, a little town, it's a quiet village, every day, like the day before, little town, full of little people, waking up to say... And then the Disney song comes to a screeching halt as Arya sees a dozen men crammed into crow cages. The locals call it justice. Thomas Sevens asks if Sir Wilbert ordered this, but the locals say that he's dead, and his sons are off getting rich with Rob. It was the Mad Huntsman who did this. And they're not Lannister men. They're wolves, as in Stark men. That leads Arya to walk closer, seeing that not all of the men are dead. Some are alive, reluctantly, baking in the sun and begging for water. She asks who they served in the war, but they're well past that. Arya asks one of the town folk what these men did. He says they were looking for Jamie, and when they didn't find him, they took out their anger on the local civilians. Arya looks at what's left of them and decides to give them water anyway. When the townsfolk try to stop her, the Brotherhood backs her up, saying there's nothing decent about this torture, though the townsfolk point out that there was nothing decent about what these men did either. Arya gives water to the men one by one as a crowd gathers. One man says the huntsman won't like it, Angai shoots back Hill like this even less, and proceeds to mercy kill the remaining men with his bow and arrows. Valar Morgulis, Arya thinks. Moving right along with their day, the Brotherhood next arrive at an inn that George charitably describes as modest, with the only nice thing about it being the sign out front, a painted peach with a big bite taken out of it. As is apparently tradition in the Riverlands, the innkeep simultaneously welcomes and roasts the Brotherhood, mocking Greenbeard's age, Lem's smelly clothes, and Tom's slutty mixed slut behavior. She's got nothing but nice words for Gendry, although he blushes when she compliments his bulging biceps. Tom asks if they can spend the night, and the innkeep agrees, as long as they take a bath first, to which Arya reacts like a house cat sprayed by a skunk. I don't need a bath, I just took one like two weeks ago but they bathe her all the same, stealing the clothes she got from Lady Smallwood and dressing her up in stereotypically girly clothes like she's one of Sansa's dolls. Finally left to her own devices, Arya starts wondering, what's up with this place, exactly? She thinks back to her dead mentor. Well, one of her dead mentors, Sirio Farrell, and what he told her about looking with your eyes. Arya realizes suddenly that there are way more serving women in here than there are drinks that need to be refilled. And they're all young. And they're all pretty. And they're all increasingly surrounded by men who don't seem eager to hang out for too long. A tiny cartoon light bulb goes off above Arya's head, and she tells Gendry, this is a brothel. Gendry, embarrassed, says Arya doesn't even know what that is. Arya, not even a little embarrassed, calls it an inn with girls. Gendry, getting more embarrassed, asks what a highborn lady like Arya is doing here then. One of the women overhears and says, she's highborn, she's a king's daughter. Or she might be, anyway. Robert slept with her mother during the battle, but it's Robert, so that doesn't exactly narrow it down. Arya thinks that the girl does have Robert's thick black hair, but hey, so do lots of people. So does Gendry. Meaningless coincidence. Where were we? Ah yes, Gendry's sister hitting on him. She says she's named Bella and offers to ring Gendry's bell for no charge, as he's a friend of Beric and Thoros, 
which is generous given that Gendry has never met Beric and only knows Thoros from making the swords that Thoros set on fire. Gendry refuses and walks off to be sullen and misunderstood somewhere else. Arya covers for him by saying he's stupid. Story checks out for Bella. Everyone at the Peach starts to party, drinking and singing and sneaking off with each other, but Arya thinks they're laughing too hard to compensate for the dead men outside. More importantly, they're distracted. Maybe Arya can steal a horse and get away. A good plan, except for the part that it's impossible. The gates are closed, and anyway, Harwin would just catch her again, like he did before. Or maybe she'd be caught by this mad huntsman everyone's talking about. Arya only wishes she knew how far she was from River Run. Well, you and your mother both, kid. Arya gets sleepy, and also drunk, before overhearing Lem, Harwin, and one of the women discussing how Catelyn arranged a threesome with Jamie and Brienne before letting him go. Yeah, we must have missed that <laughs> chapter. We're gonna have to go back. Arya thinks it couldn't have happened, but she doesn't think it with much conviction. Her sad thoughts are interrupted by something worse. An old man with gross breath and staring eyes, asking if the sweet peach has a name. Arya forgets hers, not for the first or last time, and so Gendry steps in to claim her as his sister, and get the man to back off, which he does after one look at Gendry's aforementioned bulging biceps. Arya wonders why Gendry covered for her. You're not my brother. Ouch. Gendry shoots back that yes, of course, he's too lowborn to be Milady's brother. Arya protests, but Gendry is done, claiming he wants to get drunk and then maybe go have sex with Bella. Sure, buddy. Arya thinks very loudly to herself that he's just a stupid bastard and she does not care, before heading up to bed. She whispers her usual prayer to herself as she falls asleep. Queen Cersei, Sir Illyn, the Tickler and the Hound. She wonders if some of them might be in crow cages like those outside. Not yet, anyway. Arya dreams of, what else, wolves. She takes down a horse with her pack and tears its throat out. But then, some common dogs have the balls to wake her up by barking. It's the mad huntsman at last, with his own pack of hounds, tearing into one of the corpses in the cages. The huntsman's followers have a prisoner that he calls Lannister, and threatens to stick into a cage while spending his gold before sending his body to his, quote, bloody brother. Is it the Kingslayer? Gendry asks. Sure seems like it. But when a rock hits the man's face and causes him to turn, Arya knows that instead, her prayers have been answered. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords, Arya 5. What do you make of this one, Manu? Well, Arya 5 is most definitely a chapter in A Storm of Swords, the third book <laughs> in the Song of Ice and Fire saga. Story checks out. It's it's a Cromulan chapter on the way to the fireworks factory, <laughs> as you called it, that is the Hollow Hill and the Red Wedding. The Arya chapters build slowly up to a climax at the end of the act. And coming off the very heavy Sansa chapter before it, the shorter Arya and Jon chapters that follow, it feels like George kind of balancing the pacing of his story so everything snaps into place at just the right time. But ultimately, this chapter mostly just provides us with some history, some gossip, and a check-in on the material conditions of the Riverlands. It serves its purpose and has thematic resonance, but it isn't a standout chapter for me personally. Yeah, George is really slow rolling Arya's time with the Brotherhood, and I don't love this chapter like I do her next few chapters, which are probably my favorites of hers across the whole story. But he's doing it for a reason. As in A Clash of Kings, this storyline stands in contrast to those taking place in the great courts of King's Landing and Dragonstone and Riverrun. Arya is here to show us how the other half lives, and dies, 
out here in the countryside with the innkeeps, guerrilla fighters, and sex workers trying to stay one step ahead of the war machine. This chapter is about trying to preserve some shred of life in the middle of death, and it does feel vital in that regard. And while I think you could remove this chapter and the plot structure would be pretty much the same, and Arya's arc would be mostly the same, I think the story would be less rich without it. So the chapter starts with a head fake, basically, as Harwin tells us all about the Battle of the Bells, something that really doesn't matter for Arya's story. But it fits Harwin's role in her story. He's her link to family and home. He's a reminder of better times, so it makes sense that he has a nostalgic story. Sure, it's about war, but it's all in how you tell it. Harwin is spinning the tale of Robert's Rebellion. Back when our heroes were young and horny and fighting the good war, back when Ned had a head, there's an inherently romantic appeal to it. Robert trying to rejoin his friend Ned, but he's vulnerable, wounded, and tended by other friends, as Harwin diplomatically puts it. It feels uh, like Robert coming out feels a lot like an AEW or WWF wrestling match with Robert getting his very own entrance music with the bells. It's glass shattering and Stone Cold Steve Austin running down into the ring and just clearing the field. But it also gives the story a musical component, almost like this scene would have a soundtrack and you could imagine how it would sound like if you were watching it, you know, in a movie or in a television show. Absolutely. And the beat drops as down comes Lord Connington to search all the houses. Robert fought bravely and well. The bells kept the small folk safe. How convenient. And Robert was even humble about it for once, saying that really Ned won the battle, not him. Consider this story in context with the war Arya has just ridden, ran, and crawled through. The starvation and the stink of it. The mud, the blood, the constant fear. If it had been like this, would she have had to come up with a kill list? And then there's the flip side we'll get later in the story. John Connington's perspective on all this. In which this is the moment he knew his life was ruined. The bells still haunt his dreams. There's two sides to the story, at least. And the story never really ended for the Roberts Rebellion generation. It just got old with them. And though Connington lost, Harwin heralds his deeds in battle too. He killed Sir Dennis Aaron, the darling of the Vale. Uh, though a distant cousin of the Lord Paramount, the death of famous last names leads to a minor succession crisis in the Vale that we're seeing play out right now with Littlefinger and Feast for Crows. The traumas of Robert's Rebellion are still ripping through two generations of people in Westeros later. And we often see the heraldry of the great houses used to project some image of power. Lannisters as fierce as lions, Starks as brave like wolves. Here, we see that heraldry used against John Connington. He flew off as fast as the griffins on his shield, as if the griffins' ability of flight only exists for, well, flight, not fight. And I think there's some, some shame buried deep about that, along with him pretending to die, that is motivating his, his recklessness in the present day story, along with the, you know, grayscale. That's kind of a significant motivation for him there. So George introduces us to Stony Sept as the largest town Arya has seen since King's Landing. And there's a sense at first of coming in from the storm. There's the town coming to life around Arya, persisting through the war, even a gate of new wood, a very kind of blunt symbol that we're going to survive this. Stony Sept has survived wars down through the generations. Yeah, some not a cast behind the scenes. Me and Emmett both independently came to the idea of this being essentially the bonjour scene from Beauty and the Beast. The town it's true. I put it in the synopsis and then Manu put it later in the document. Great minds think alike. What can we say? 
but it is a very perverse version of that. Um, instead, I mean, I guess that town also comes to life and just start, starts gossiping about Belle being a real weird girl. So I don't know if that's much a better. Most peculiar mademoiselle. <laughs> it's true. It's a great song. I can't help um, it. I, I guess at least Aria is not being sung about here, but it's definitely the less cheery version of what is going on in Beauty mm-hmm. and the Beast. Um, though we do get some useful talk here. We're hearing about Lord Edimir, which would reflect the passing of Hoster Tully, and also uh, the Kingslayer and the Huntsman being out and about and some uncertainty surrounding those two. And the actual people we meet aren't, yeah, they're not, they're not cheery and the gossip they do has everything to do with, with war and death. They're survivors and they're obsessed with those who have been taken from them. Desperate to dig more graves. Throughout this chapter, you get the imagery of life on one hand, and then the imagery of death on the other. Like, there's apparently a guy calling himself the Mad Huntsman. That's a really promising sign. And he's out hunting Jamie. A chewed-up lion corpse. That's what they say he's after. The use of animal imagery to distract from the raw realities of killing your fellow man. Yeah, I thought that was striking relative to what you were saying about the sigils and how John Connington has talked about. George definitely rings that animal imagery dry. Like early on in Dance with Dragons when Illyrio just makes fun of it to Tyrion. It's like, you really, you guys really think you are those animals, don't you? <laughs> Let me put you in a cage with a lion. You'll see what happened. So the Mad Huntsman wants to kill Jamie, And Lem gets agitated by that. Because Jamie is too valuable a resource to waste. But while the people of Stony Sept are friendly to the Brotherhood, they're not in the Brotherhood. And they don't kill for the same reason that Beric Dondarrion does. Nor do they do it in the same way. Yeah, justice looks different to everyone. Something George is really good at showing to us explicitly through characters like Beric Dondarrion or Ned Stark or Stannis Baratheon. And the Mad Huntsman himself is basically just cycles of violence taken human form. He doesn't have much characterization to him, but we do know he was a victim of horrific violence from the Lannisters, losing his wife, daughter, crops, sheep, dogs, and all of that was tossed into a well, spoiling his water too. They went fully scorched earth on him, and now he repays in horrific kind, as we're about to see. It's such a potent symbol of, of reckless destruction poisoning a well. Because that's always, you're not just messing up that person, you're messing up everyone in the area who might need a drink, including yourselves. Like, you're, you're salting the earth even for your own followers. And so it makes a, yeah, a perverse kind of logic that the people of Stony Sept are now denying water to their prisoners in turn. And yeah, that's what leads us to the men in the crow cages, which is probably the most memorable part of this chapter. And George paces this so well. First, he just shows us what's happening, what's being done to these men. Just... I, it's, it's hard to even imagine for me the torture of this, just the unimaginable suffering second by second, just the, the hell of being alive. And you're just immediately confronted with the question, what, why, why would you do that to someone? How could you do that to someone? And the descriptions of the size uh, of these cages, specifically in terms of how they weren't large enough to really sit or lay comfortably or do anything in, reminds me a lot of the ice cells we're going to see later in this book at the wall. And in their own way, they are crow cages themselves, especially especially since John will be thrown into one, you know, in this book. That's a great point. Yep. Crow in the, in the pejorative sense. <laughs> They're all kind of stuck up there at the wall. And then so only then does George tell us what these guys have done rape and murder, more of the war crimes we've seen throughout the series, especially in the Arya chapters. So is what's being done to them justice, or is it just more pain on pain? As the townsfolk said, there is nothing decent about what they did. It seems galling that they should expect fair treatment given what they've done to people. 
does this help the situation? Does this improve anyone's life? Well, the alternative seems to be doing nothing, given that the traditional legal structure has abandoned them. Tom asks if this was the will of Sir Wilbert, but he is long dead, and his sons are at war. Actually, they don't even put it like that. What the small folks say is they're off getting rich with Rob Stark. Because that's all the war means here. The people who were supposed to protect us abandoned us. And, and from the small folks' perspective, they didn't do it to punish the wicked Lannisters for executing brave noble Ned Stark, as Rob thinks about it. No, they went off to just brutalize a bunch of other small folk in the Westerlands and soak them the way the, the bloody mummers and everyone else are soaking us here in the Riverlands. And we'll learn in the Griffin Reborn chapter in A Dance with Dragons, John Connington too threw prisoners into these very same crow cages when he was trying to find Robert amongst the townsfolk. And I hate to just repeating the phrase cycles of violence, but here again, we're seeing the same violence visited upon this town that was visited, you know, 18 to 20 years ago. And now we have Arya's kind of unique perspective coming to bear on it. That's what really complicates this scene is Arya's connection to these men. They're Stark men. They flew the direwolf banner. This is the old life, the old family, the old name she's trying to get back. And here they are, committing the kinds of horrors that led her to get multiple men killed from Jock and Hagar. This is why she gave Chiswick's name to the mysterious assassin. So there's the logistical difficulty of getting it, getting back to her pack. That's something Arya deals with over and over again in Storm of Swords. At one point she says, it's like, I feel like I've been making for River Run for a year. And I don't even know if River Run is real anymore. But there's also this complication. Like, if, if this is the nature of her pack, does she even want to go back? Yeah, it feels very instrumental to her growth towards, you know, becoming no one. Is, you know, you... Ha- no one isn't just an absolute thing. It's in the context of the people around you. And she's feeling more and more divorced from that, as we're going to kind of slowly see throughout the rest of this book. And we also see how notions of justice and violence are beginning to cement in Arya's mind, that her own violent notions, such as her list of names, can only take hold in a political reality where justice has no coherence or presence. By the time we get to Feast for Crows, we see her coolly murder Darren for abandoning the Night's Watch, just fully taking violent justice upon her own shoulders. But for now, we still see Arya still confined to territorial thinking, asking the prisoners, whose men were you? The dying captives don't care. They just want water, the very basic requirement of life, the literal bottom of the need hierarchy. That is being denied to them. But Arya is still focused on what side they fight for, repeating, whose? Rereading this chapter, I was waiting for George to clue us into which wolves these prisoners might be. I was thinking perhaps the Karstarks that fled Rob's cause, so we'd see the white sunburst out of the, out of that house somewhere among the faded rags that's hanging on to these guys. But nope, George doesn't give us the answer because I think the purpose is not whose side are they on, but what is happening to them and through what lens is Arya Stark taking all this in? And Arya takes it on her own at this point to use the fountain to scoop up some water for these soon-to-be-dead men. And one thing I appreciate is that this small kindness is supported by Arya's current pack. Lem and Harwin tell the townsfolk to allow Arya to slake the prisoner's thirst, and Harwin and Gendry physically aid Arya in giving relief to these men. Compassion can breed compassion, if we allow it. And it also reminds me a little bit of Daenerys' impulses in Astapor as well, witnessing the punishments of slaves. You have these, you know, these crushing inhuman systems just pressing down on people. But there are there are moments, there are chances for individuals to make a difference. I think, you know, even though Beric isn't present in this chapter, he is in the sense that 
he's really the main reason the Brotherhood still behaves so differently from this approach to handling prisoners, because he instilled in them this idea that we're not here to torture, we're here to kill if necessary, but we're not here to torture. And that's what makes the difference here. And I think for Arya, it it ultimately boils down to how she wants to handle people as an individual, as as one individual talking to another. Like, she can't fix the whole system right now. She can't even really work on it. All she can do is not deny starving men some water. The quality of mercy is not strained, as Shakespeare would put it. And the mercy has two sides here. It's the cup of water, but it's also Angai's arrows. And that's that's this assertion of Beric's authority. Even though, again, he's not present, that's Angai saying, Beric Dondarrion's law rules here, and anyone who has a problem with that has a problem with me, has a problem with us. And that's the, even though we haven't gotten to Beric's, like, literal rebirths yet, him as a magical figure, there's already this, the sense of something miraculous about how people talk about him and how people treat him, that he can, alchemically, he can convert revenge into justice, that through Beric, what we're doing is not just a cycle of violence, it's not just blood for blood, we are doing good, and it's in part because we're with him, and we do as he does. Yeah, and I think part of the reason we're spending so much time drawing out this reveal or this arrival of Beric Dondarrion is we spent a lot of a clash of kings on the Hall side of things and we just kind of heard let's say the negative side of the myth of Beric but here now in the presence of the brotherhood we're actually seeing why the myth of Beric exists even in the first place why men are rallying to his cause or why they might feel I want to execute justice in the way Beric would or why they feel compelled to do that. And we don't have all those answers yet, but showing us, showing that to us tells us a lot about this brotherhood without even meeting the core leadership yet. And Westeros at the best of times doesn't have great covenants around prisoners of war. But as you say, the War of the Five Kings has caused the feudal contract to come crashing down. And now the meeting out of punishment is left to whoever is left and willing to do so. That's what you see when the townspeople who are not really there to meet out justice and punishment, this is what they do. They throw them in the crow cages because that's what was there. You know, I figure that's just the easiest solution. And then it take someone like Angai to come in and, you know, we know we have a principled sense of justice and that might be debatable, but you can see that in action more so than with the townspeople. I, I do like how George handles it, that the Brotherhood's model of justice, A, has its own flaws, which we'll see with Sandor, and B, really depends on Beric being the one in charge, because as soon as Stoneheart's in charge, things change. But then in this chapter, we get this immediate tone switch from horror to comedy. We arrive at the peach, the brothel. And the peach, as a symbol, is an embodiment of sex and youth and good times, as with Renly in the previous book. We get the body innkeep making fun of the Brotherhood and deconstructing their pretentious little identities, just like Sharna did at the end of The Kneeling Man. Yeah, this Tansy character hits me like a ton of Olena Tyrell bricks, just Mm -hmm. immediately disarming these bold outlaws we've been hanging out with for a while. Greenbeard's old, Lem's full of piss, Tom's leaving more seeds than the last harvest. And I love how Tom is said to protest weekly, something we see often when characters are confronted with Olena as well. Like they, they feel the need to stand up for themselves, but like halfway through the sentence, they realize I'm wasting my time. I, I should have just stayed quiet. And even before we learn, even before we get the reveal that the peach is a brothel, we get the, the theme of sex in their conversations, that, that Tom is being castigated for leaving a trail of sons behind, which is also what Lady Smallwood made fun of him for. 
And I, I like that Tom says, uh, none of them have my voice. That's his way of ducking responsibility, but also reveals that that's really all Tom cares about, is the art, is the craft, and anything else, anything else can always wait. And uh, uh, Tansy the Innkeep also points out Gendry's bulging Superman arms, and Gendry gets embarrassed about it. And I like, then we start moving in kind of this bittersweet tone of the chapter, of this this generational gap in terms of perspectives on sex. Like you have these these middle-aged men who are past their prime, but, you know, can still mostly get it up. And they're, they, they're, they're looking for a nice respite from the war. And then you have Gendry and Arya. Gendry a little older than Arya, obviously, but they're kind of just entering the part of their lives where they even think about that and have that as a, as a desire and something they're exploring. And that's what's so funny about Arya's perspective when she says, I know what a brothel is. It's an inn with girls, which, you know, it's not incorrect. It's just kind of missing the central point. As with Sansa having to face the realities of betting in the chapter we did most recently, where Sansa used to enjoy the betting ceremony because it was just wicked and exciting, and I don't think she was even consciously thinking about what was happening behind those closed doors, and now she has to. Speaking of Sansa, Arya mentions her when the serving girls dress her up like one of Sansa's dolls in linen and lace. Arya being scrubbed and all cleaned up comes right on the heels of Sansa 3, which opened with Sansa being cleaned up and dressed up like one of her own dolls for her wedding to Tyrion. And the contrast shows us the opposite ends of the class spectrum. On one end, Sansa's being dressed up for a feudal wedding, a, a performance for the entire Seven Kingdoms. Arya, meanwhile, is being cleaned just so she doesn't leave fleas behind at the end. And this is where she brings up Sirio's, one of Sirio's many mantras, look with your eyes. And I love that she's using this not in a combat situation because it's not just a fighting skill. It's a, it's a social skill. It's about learning how to, to read a room and see beneath people's words. And that's something that's valuable in all areas of life. And it's connected to her quoting Valar Mugulis earlier, the, the line she picked up from Jock and Hagar. Arya has learned a lot from her various mentors. And as the series goes on, that, that adds to the richness of her character that she's, she's calling back to all these people. And sometimes it seems like she's not even aware she's doing it anymore. Like these have become her words and her things that she lives by. And Sirio and Jockin are just in the rearview mirror. And then we get, yeah, the bit where Bella is flirting with Gendry. And this is just, again, a great comedy scene because there's just, there's just so many levels of irony happening here. The main one being, of course, that Bella almost certainly is Robert's daughter. And she's flirting with Robert's son and neither of them know it. Yeah, and in response to Gendry's uninterest in Bella, she turns around to Arya and asks if he's not into girls. In other words, is he gay? To which Arya responds, he polishes helmets and beats on swords with hammers, which can be read as innuendo for him being gay. And Bella just says, oh. <laughs> okay, then immediately moves on to the next guy. And yeah, there's also just the great joke of of how uncomfortable and squeamish Gendry is about sex compared to his dad, the horniest man in human history. That's hysterical. I, yeah, I love that. Because, you know, Robert... Robert was a few years older than Gendry when he was here, but like not decades older. And yet those few years, that makes all the difference. And with very little interiority into Gendry's persona, I wonder if he has a little of that Jon Snow syndrome. Someone who is a bastard themselves who may have some internal conflicts about potentially having a bastard themselves. And then there's the other layer of irony in that, no, Gendry absolutely does have a crush, but it's on Arya. And that's part of why he's being so awkward here. And then the, the great bittersweet layer on top of that is that Gendry thinks he's, he's too low class to be a potential romantic interest for Arya, when in fact, he has royal blood. He's a bastard, yeah, but a king's bastard. That's not, you know, that's not too far low in the world. Arya could have an interest at the very least. 
but neither of them know it. And then we get this this great little bit in the chapter, which I had forgotten until this reread, where Arya is again looking with her eyes, reading the room. No one's paying attention to her yet. And she just thinks, "You're n- none of this fun feels real. It doesn't feel organic. It feels forced, like you're laughing too hard. You're partying too hard. And it speaks to her maturity that she realizes the reason why that is, is because they're trying to forget about the dead guys outside. They're trying to banish the specter of all that is outside this room right now, which means they have to laugh harder and party harder than they might under other circumstances. It's a portrait of life during wartime. People under occupation desperately trying to carve out a space for relaxation alongside resistance. But you know, it's also just a portrait of life, period. Good times coexist with bad, and neither permanently dispel the other. You can't get rid of it all, so you enjoy yourself despite that. Is that partly performative? Well, yeah. It goes hand in hand with all these nicknames and reputations that people are making fun of, but they have value. They have power. We're all living out a story, acting like the person we want to be or think we should be. And it connects to Harwin's story earlier, where he was telling Robert's Rebellion in a very kind of romantic way and glossing over a lot of the details. It's the war as we tell it and sing it, not as it was. Yeah, to that point, you know, Harwin says Robert was wounded and being treated by friends. Bella likely tells us those friends were the sex workers in the peach. But for some reason, that part never makes the songs. Or at least not the ones that someone like Arya would hear. (laughs) Maybe there's a body song about Robert and the peach somewhere, but she was never going to hear that. It depends on the audience. Everyone takes these little bits and pieces off the, you know, as they say in Lord of the Rings, is history becomes myth and myth becomes legend. And you just get further and further from the real thing, and you end up with the bard's truth instead. I bet they write those songs in Dorne. I bet they do. And, you know, that's what makes it so sad is that's also Arya's whole life now. Like, that's the nature of her identity. It's just cover stories inside cover stories. And maybe no one's real. No one is waiting underneath anymore. When one creep asks her name, who is the little peach, she thinks for half a heartbeat, she forgot who she was supposed to be. And that's just that's just a, a perfect distillation of how it's all a mask for Arya now, and she's losing any real sense of, of a stable foundation. And Gendry saves her by faking kinship. No, that's my sister, which is, again, ironic, because Bella, his real sister, is across the room. And Arya, you know, I don't think she's thinking about class when she says, what, you're not my brother. It's just a very kind of instinctive, naive reaction Because even though she's been in the shit, in the thick of it, down with the small folk in the war, she still hasn't quite reckoned with the gap between how she was brought up and how Gendry was brought up. And so Gendry just projects all his insecurities onto her. It's a a great crossover of class insecurity and gendered insecurity. Because Gendry increasingly works as a vessel for the, the class critique that George is doing in these chapters, that he ends up joining the Brotherhood, and he really doesn't like Edric Dane. But that's also going hand in hand with his nervousness about sex. It's kind of both of those are working on him in this scene. Yeah, from his perspective, he's never really had a pack like Arya. He's mm-hmm. a bastard who doesn't know his own father. He went to work for Tobo Mott and then was sold to the Night's Watch, as far as he knows, and has been passed along at the whims of High Lords for some time now. So he's used to feeling alone or friendless, which makes Arya's instant rebuke sting that much more. Especially when Gendry just saved her from a drunken creep, one whose breath reminded her of the dead men outside. She doesn't even say thanks. 
And like you say, this is what's getting Gendry primed to want to join the Brotherhood. That choice to be with people he admires, or at least doesn't hate, and, you know, that has been denied to him all his life. He's just kind of been forced into one situation into another, and this is his one chance to actually kind of choose his own path or choose his own destiny. And he, he isn't willing to be honest about what he feels about Arya, probably because he's really confused about it. And she, even younger, has really no way of processing what I think are developing feelings towards him. And so you get this this great little dynamic where it's it's, you know, it's sad that they have to keep denying their feelings for each other but it's also really funny just how how angry it makes them and just like how are you just has to insist to herself he's a bastard i don't care look at how hard i'm not caring right now george has said how hard it is for him to write the younger povs and to get into their thoughts brand especially but also are in that vein i think he does a generally really good job and i think this really captures that age when you get your first stirrings of a crush and it just freaks you out so you just angrily do whatever you can to deny it yeah, especially when you don't really have developed those communication skills, which would allow you to kind of earnestly process and communicate those feelings. Um, and of course, there's everything else. They're in the middle of a war zone on a long march. You know, they have every reason to not really, you know, kind of not connect here as you'd kind of want them to. Yeah, they've got a lot to do, a lot to process. They got the brotherhood around them <laughs> at all times. But, you know, and part of it is just, though, is just age. Like John and Egret have... Uh, some similar problems going on some other terrifying circumstances but they get along just fine because they're at their age where their their bodies are ready to kind of back up those stirring feelings and Arya and Gendry aren't there yet so you know there's generation gaps but even at this age even within a generation a couple years apart and your whole perspective on things change and uh, we see that kind of with John Daenerys the the somewhat older members of this generation yeah sex the solution to and cause of all of life's problems (laughs) I think I got that backwards but that's about right. Um, so the other thing I mentioned as a big takeaway from this chapter was some of the gossip that we got. Mm-hmm. And here we hear Lem and Tansy talking about the Kingslayer's escape from River Run, uh, which stood out to me. Because in their little chat, we get a far more body version where perhaps some carnal knowledge was exchanged between Catelyn and Jamie, and perhaps even Brienne prior to Jamie being set free. The exact phrasing is, all three of them, and come the morn, Lady Catelyn cut him loose for love. For love is a great expression because it has truth. Catelyn did it for love of her daughters. But when you have two women staying overnight in the handsome knight's cell and him escaping the next day, for love will translate differently to people not in the know. And the salacious version here makes me think a lot of Mushroom and his more salacious tellings compared to that of Septon Eustace or the Grand Maester. As want as we are to take a lot of truth from Mushroom's words, here's an example where the exact opposite is true, where the chaste truth is closer to the actual thing. It reminds me of what Littlefinger said in the previous book, that if we spread around the idea that Patchface is Shireen's father, people will believe that specifically because it, it allows them to gossip about Stannis and to, to take him down a peg. And I think that's what's also going on here. These people resent the Starks and the Lannisters for good reasons. So, like, telling the story's way of saying, see, they're, they're base and lustful and not as awesome and high and mighty as they think they are. And it's it's a salve. It, you know, it kind of helps you process your, your anger and your, your helplessness about what a lot of powerful people are doing in this war. So Arya goes to sleep. How else with her kill list? Kind of whispering herself to sleep, all the people she wants dead. And right before she drifts off, she thinks she wishes they were in the crow cages outside. And that really captures the struggle here, because she gave mercy to the men outside, even though they did horrible things. So why would why would it be good for Cersei or Ill in Pain to be in the cages? 
well, it's more real when it happens to you or people you know. I think there's inherently a level of abstraction otherwise that you you kind of reach your horror at least in part intellectually rather than purely emotionally as Arya's been experiencing it. There is no objective position from which to judge this. You are involved personally or less so and that's going to influence how you, your perspective on things. Arya was able to conceptualize that these men needed mercy from her but if it was Cersei in the cage, maybe not. Or maybe in that moment she would. It's, it's, it's very difficult to tell. Like with Sansa and Sandor during the Blackwater and Sansa being afraid of him at first and then thinking of him as someone who needed help. And that's, you know, both of those things are true. It's just a question of perspective. Arya dreams of being able to strike back along with her wolf pack. But then she wakes up to a different pack, the barking dogs. For a moment, it's like her, her dream has become reality. There he is. There's the mad huntsman threatening to throw one of the people she hates most into a crow cage. Your prayer came true. And George, uh, he, he drops a cliffhanger on us here. And uh, I think it works well to have the actual reveal of Sandor Clegane wait for Barrack's cave. In the next chapter, it's very dramatic when you get the firelight on his face. That's a great moment. Yeah, the chapter is very obviously priming you to think it's Jamie. They mm-hmm. loudly call the prisoner Lannister and his whereabouts have been a hot topic twice already in this very short chapter. We'll send you to your bloody brother, could obviously refer to Tyrion. So, you know, it kind of has that foundational rule of three kind of thing working with the, within the chapter itself, which is, you know, something George likes to use in building out his chapters. Uh, but instead, the imagery of dogs throughout this chapter was the sneaky, accurate foreshadowing, building up the hounds heralding the capture of Sandor Clegane. Arya, noting her prayers had been answered, can be circled back to a few paragraphs earlier, reciting the names before her wolf dream, and the hound is on there, Jamie Lannister is not. So, you know, the puzzle pieces are there, maybe not the exact answer, but, you know, it's something you will appreciate coming back on the second try. It's definitely George having fun with how many storylines he has going on in the Riverlands at this point. There are, are so many balls he's juggling, so many little factions like the Starks you mentioned earlier, the Bloody Mummers, you got Roose Bolton, you got Gregor Clegane comes into the area at one point. And this is kind of George just using that to his advantage and, and being able to trick you because of how many people are involved. And then you get the great reveal, yeah, that it's Sandor, who we haven't seen since, since the Blackwater. So that's going to that's gonna be really interesting. It, yeah, and it works even better coming back when you when you have the, the, the dog pack surrounding Sandor, like the, the hound's fellow dogs have turned on him. And we know, of course, coming back that Arya is going to enter into a much more complicated relationship with him, just like Sansa did. In the end of the book, Arya denies Sandor mercy by refusing to kill him. And that's what I love about uh, Arya's struggle with violence. It, it never sits still. George keeps putting her through different gauntlets, so she never even settles on a firm conclusion about how she feels about violence. It keeps changing. And that leaves the questions open. What does she want? Why does she want it? And will it make her happy? Same questions apply for the people of this town. Same for the Brotherhood. And definitely the same questions for Sandra Clegane, who still does not know what makes him happy. Maybe digging graves seems to do it. Maybe that's it. That's what he was born for. Yeah, no, that's such a good call, calling out to the ending with the Hound, where Arya refuses to give him mercy, given all that we saw in this chapter mm-hmm. with her uh, giving water to the people in the crow cages. So we see, like you say, her notion of this is always in motion, because it's very complicated, Her and everything's ever-changing. So, moving on into foreshadowing and groundwork, obviously the big one, we've already been talking about this. This is the chapter, one of several chapters that really sets up John Connington. 
Now, George already had the return of Aegon VI in mind, if the Mummer's Dragon prophecy from the House of the Undying is any indication. It's not clear yet whether, as he's writing Storm of Swords, he has John Con in mind as, like, the POV for that storyline. If not here, it is shortly afterwards, because when we get to A Feast for Crows, Red Ronick Connington becomes prominent and gives Jamie a whole bunch more backstory, so clearly at this point, he's writing Dance at the same time he's working on John Con. Regardless, if George hadn't decided on that yet, well, he, he pulled off a good gardener move as he does so often, he left himself room to grow. This chapter sets up John Con as the, the mirror image of Robert and Ned, someone who is equally defined by Robert's rebellion, but fought on the losing side. Yeah, the way war goes in Westeros, often the losing side doesn't linger on much longer after defeat. As Tywin tells Arya in the throne show, do you think I'd still be here if I'd lost a war? John Connington emerges as a fascinating character in A Dance with Dragons. Most point of views in the series have been about traumas experienced by peoples and houses on the winning side of Robert's Rebellion. And while Danny and Sam and the Martell kids were on the losing side, they weren't present for it. Connington gets to be our vantage point then, and in doing so, gets to also provide some eyes on Rhaegar Targaryen, as some of his mystery needs to unravel in the final books as well. He also gets mentioned back in the Night of the Laughing Tree story for Mira as one of the hands when describing which of Eris's court had come to the tourney at Harrenhal. So George is slowly planting those seeds, immediately grounding Connington in the political machinations on top of the martial ones introduced through the Battle of the Bells. And for me, at least it worked. Like when I first read A Dance with Dragons and Tyrion is dealing with this morose asshole Griff and then reveals at one point that he's John Connington, I was like, oh, I remember. I know who that is. That's a guy that you've brought up a bunch of times. It was it was it worked for me really well on that basis. And I think you still could have done that storyline without building him up first. But for me, it really added to the effectiveness, which is something George does very well. He builds up Mance for a while before you meet him, Stannis, Euron. Marwyn the Mage, he's very good at dealing, doing the Barrack before you see him again, gets brought up over and over again. George is very good at doing the, the off-screen characters and giving you a sense of their reputation. So when you do meet them, it's kind of like a lot of the work is already done of introducing them. And you kind of just get to hit the ground running with those characters. I will uh, admit this, that I was so taken with John Connington in A Dance with Dragons that I wanted to believe Fagon was real or Young Griff was the real deal just for John Connington's sake, because I was just super <laughs> into everything happening in his chapters and everything happening with his own story uh, with the grayscale and all of that. So um, I wanted to believe. I really wanted to believe. So does he. So <laughs> does he. But yeah, no, I, I really, John Connington, the, ch the two POV chapters we've gotten from him are both really rich and really well done. We'll be getting to those, you know, quite a bit down the line. <laughs> That's in the, in the far future, but those, those are great chapters, so we will, we will have a great time with those. So, along the same lines, moving into theory and discussion for the episode, there is the, the motif of the bells brought up here with regards to the Battle of the Bells at Stony Sept. Those become much more prominent in John Con's POV chapters. So, kind of unavoidable topic. How do we think that's going to pay off, especially relative to how the bells paid off in Season 8 of Game of Thrones? Well, the bells always ring for horror, right? A dead king, a siege, a wedding? Bells seem to have a dual meaning in the battle Harwin tells us about here. The bells to the small folk meant to go inside and hide yourself, but to Robert, it was a call to arms, to join the battle at the turn of the tide. In concept, I think Season 8 got this part spiritually correct? Kinda? The bell should have been the cessation of violence, a call for surrender and hopefully the rest can be hammered out without dragon fire. 
But then, of course, the opposite occurs, and the bells ringing set the score to the burning of King's Landing. The question I think we always ask about Danny's arrival to Westeros is who's going to actually be sitting on the Iron Throne when her dragons pull up to King's Landing. I think it's far more likely to be young Grift than Cersei as the show depicted, which would likely make John Connington the hand, give or take some grayscale. I think something along the lines of what we saw at the end of season eight could be in the card somewhere, and John Connington as a point of view into that would add another layer of tragedy and deepen the pathos of the entire experience. I'll add here that the use of bells in Game of Thrones season eight aren't necessarily details I think will be included in A Dream of Spring. I think it was a smart choice to use for the show, especially because of how effectively it can be used and explained in the confines of 90 minutes of television for a mass audience. However, the bells ringing have been at the core of Daenerys' story and rise of power since the start, namely the bells in Dothraki hair that signify victories in battle. So that imagery is still being layered in by George from the beginning of the story. Yeah, that's a great point. The bells in her hair, like the ones that ring after she burns the undying and uh, the undying in their palace of dust whenever handmaid says so that's that's part of her pov as well as john Con's. and yeah i totally agree that that young grift is more likely to be on the iron throne when danny comes a calling when she when she comes around the mountain to king's landing because and this is you know i've i've enjoyed a lot more of season eight over time coming back to it but one one sticking point for me is still that it really doesn't work for me that Danny feels rejected or abandoned by the people of King's Landing because Cersei is in charge. Like, she's a tyrant. No one likes her. No one rejected her. No one chose her. It really doesn't make sense that she's in charge at all. Like, so for me, that was always lacking where it really does make sense to me if young Grift is in charge because the whole idea of him as Varus has carefully stage managed is to be the the perfect king to appeal to the to the populace and to show off his you know it's his shadow on a wall theory given form that you just give people something to believe in and if you do it right they'll believe in it and it doesn't matter what the substance of it is and that ties into the dance, like the, the passage about Aegon II having all the trappings of power relative to Rhaenyra. That's clearly the young Grift equivalent. Or you could Renly versus Stannis. Renly not being, you know, the heir in terms of the succession, but he looks and acts and feels like a king. And I think we're going to see that with young Grift relative to Danny. And I, lo- I love the idea of it of the Bell's motif maybe meaning different things to Danny and John Con, and something that maybe ties multiple POVs together. You know, the way uh, the way it worked in the Blackwater and you, know, you could kind of tell different kind of timelines among different POVs and we could we could see, you know, for Danny could signal victory and for John Connick could trigger like a psychos like a psychotic breakdown if he's still around at that point. That's something that I think could be could be really memorable and I, I would not be surprised if that was part of the climax. So I think that is going to wrap us up for A Storm of Swords Arya 5. Thank you so much as always for listening. If you want to give us a rate and review on whatever your podcast app of choice, we always appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. And you can follow me at Quentin on Twitter. And I'm Manu. Uh, you can find me at Manuclear Bomb on Twitter and other social media. And you can also check out my Lord of the Rings podcast, my brother, my captain, my podcast. So next week, we're not going to be putting out another A Song of Ice and Fire episode. Instead, I'm cu- jumping back into Lord of the Rings. I'm jumping back into my Lord of the Rings episodes on a monthly basis. 
Uh, we're going to be kicking things off with Book 5, Chapter 7, The Pyre of Denethor, where I left off last time, the extremely dark and memorable chapter where the current Lord of Gondor implodes, I guess is the most <laughs> accurate way of putting it, in, in, in every sense. So that's going to be coming out for patrons starting on uh, Friday the 9th, and then coming out for poor fellow patrons, $5 and above patrons, on Monday the 12th. So it's a great time to check out the Patreon if you haven't yet. Go ahead to patreon.com slash ASOIAF if you enjoyed the Lord of the Rings episodes that were coming out for everyone over the spring and summer. Those are going to be continuing for patrons on a monthly basis. And in the week after that, we're going to be coming back to A Song of Ice and Fire for A Storm of Swords, John 4, in which John returns to his ex, the Wall, who is pretty pissed at him, but thankfully takes it out on everyone else. Every time John shows up, the Wall's just crying. That's why the wall is weeping so much on the Song of Ice and Fire and misses John. Aww. So thanks again for listening, folks, and we will uh, see you in a couple weeks' time for A Storm of Swords, John 4.